Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jiggy Puzzles, a female-founded puzzle company with each design created by a female artist who gets a percentage of every sale. Each comes with puzzle glue to preserve it and hang it as art because you don't have enough of your kids' art on the walls. Puzzles have been connected to decreased anxiety, dementia, stress, and improved sleep and memory. Who knew? Get 10% off with code ZIBBY, all caps, Z-I-B-B-Y. I interviewed Taffy Ackner as part as the Stryker Center from Temple Emanuel's Women on the Move series, which we did as a webinar with hundreds of people listening. It was really fun. I had been looking forward to interviewing Taffy about her book, Fleischman is in Trouble, for a very long time, and I finally got to do it. Taffy Bredesser Ackner was formerly a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and has written for GQ, ESPN the Magazine, and many other publications. Fleischman is in Trouble was her first novel. Hi, Taffy. It's so nice to see you. Nippy, it's so great to see you. How are you? I'm good. I feel like I've been waiting to interview you forever, and this is, like, fantastic. Yeah, so ironic. To no call better us time than move, in a pandemic. So. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> we are not on the move anymore. That's true. We are sedentary women. <laughs> Completely sedentary. Yes. <laughs> Listless, if in fact. <laughs> okay, so recovering women. Here we are. <laughs> well, congratulations on all the success that Fleischman is in trouble has had, and your upcoming paperback coming out July seventh is so exciting. Thank you. Maybe by July 7th, there'll be a way to non-virtually promote, but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I'm sure that most people attending this webinar already are familiar with your book, but just in case there are a few people out there who may not have read it, would you mind giving your quick spiel about it? My quick spiel about it. First, I just want to say thank you for having me. And also, I'd like to give a shout out to my aunt, Lois Ackner, and my mother, Daniela Shalmoni, who who have followed me around for this tour. So I just want to say hello because I know they're in the audience. Fleischman is in Trouble is ostensibly the story of a doctor on the Upper East Side who is recently divorced and trying to find his way in a wild new world of dating and divorcing and co-parenting and dating apps on his phone when one Friday his ex-wife drops the kids off and doesn't return to pick them up. And that's what the story is about. I never know at this point how many people are here because they've read it and have questions, how many people haven't read it. I don't want to give any spoilers. So that's the setup. It's about divorce. It's about dating. It's about It's principally to me about middle age, and it's about trying to figure out how you ended up with the life that you have and whether or not you could have predicted it when you started out. That's such a good question. I would say no. (laughs) For most people. I have to say, earlier this morning, I did Zoom pediatrician checkups for my two kids. And I mentioned to my pediatrician, yeah, that was fun. And I mentioned to her that I was about to do this webinar with you. And she said, I think I know Fleischman. So she wants to know if it's a real doctor or not, because she is sure that she knows him. 
So there are a lot of people who believe that they know Fleischmann. While I was promoting the hardcover, I had a couple of people ask if they were Fleischmann. <laughs> I had a couple of people ask if they were Rachel. The truth is, is that I am a person who grew up Jewish in New York and a short specialist on the Upper East Side is literally the least specific person I could think of. It is a cliche of, of my life. And I am very surprised at the amount of people who think they know him, think they are him. I have a couple of friends who match the description well, but, you know, it's my first book. And if I had known how well they would match the description and that people would make these inferences instead of saying, oh, I too know 17 specialists on the Upper East Side who are short, who are newly divorced, who are dating, who are all three of those things. I think I would have been very scared because, you know, Fleischman does some light sexual harassing. He throws raw chicken at his, like, those are things I would never have wanted to implicate anyone that I know. But I'm glad to hear that they think that. I'm also surprised at the amount of people who think that. So <laughs> that's good, right? It means that they, these people seem real. That's, that's what I will take away from it. Exactly. There you go. Good character development. A plus. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Please don't sue me, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a career as this amazing interviewer. So I'm actually a little almost intimidated to be interviewing you because you interviewed so many people and you do such great write-ups, like the one you just did about Val Kilmer in particular, which really took me back to the 80s and everything. How did you decide to write this book and how did you use all those sort of journalistic skills that you honed over time to create these A-plus characters that you came up with? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. When I started writing Fleischman, it seemed so intimidating to me to write a novel. And the impetus for wanting to write it, by the way, was that I was, I was working at GQ at the time. And a bunch of my friends had told me they were getting divorced and they were showing me their phones and they were showing me like this kind of new, strange way of dating, which was very different than the way we dated in the 90s, right? Yes. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And when I can't stop thinking about something, I call an editor and I say, I think I should write about this. And in this case, my editor said to me, you know, you don't always sound like an out-of-touch suburban mother, but in this case, you really do, because the GQ reader would not even understand what you're talking about. They've been doing this for so long. They don't think this is just how they date. This is like this is like writing about going to a grocery store. It's just so I had a choice. I could take it elsewhere, but also I could write it as a book and I could write about one guy that I make up that instead of the kind of stress of my normal job, which, you know, is it's hard. It's getting right that what Val Kilmer's motives are in the world, which is not as easy as asking him what his motives are in the world. I was able to write this like a profile. Like that's how I kept it normal in my head is that it is a profile beginning, middle and end a story about a man. Whereas when I was at GQ, that's exactly what I was writing. Long stories about men that in the end were more about me and what I was thinking 
than anything that a self-respecting celebrity would ever share with me. Love it. So how do you do it, by the way? How did you, I mean, even in the Val Kilmer piece, for instance, there was something he said in the beginning where you're like, see how he does that? See how he takes everything and and makes it like that there's something good, that it was preordained or something like that. So what is the trick to that you have found to sort of getting all that information out without being so obvious about it? That's a good interviewer question. And in, in, with that, I will address what you said before about what the thing that we do. It's very different. You have this obligation in front of all of these. I think there are like hundreds of people here. I've been trying not to think about that. But you have these hundreds of people and they have questions. I go somewhere. I'm spending two days with someone. I try my hardest not to ask any questions. And if you don't ask questions, if you just listen and you let people fill the silence, which as you can see is not my natural mode, but if you let people fill the silence with the thing that they have to say, you can ask yourself as the interviewer, why is that person saying it? And when they When a person chooses what they're going to tell you and you can in turn ask yourself, why would they choose? Why would he or she choose to tell me this? Then you know something about a person. Whereas if I were to just flood the zone with questions, which I don't have to do because I am not here to inform people in the same way you are, you never really get to know a person except for the information that they have to give you. Does that make sense? Yes. And now I'm trying to analyze why you said that as your answer. <laughs> but you should, because, it, because if you read my transcripts, you'd find them so dumb and boring and you don't want anyone listen. Like, like I, sometimes when a story does well, they ask if they could publish like a, a, a section of my transcript and the things I do to make people talk, which are just sit and listen and like a therapist more than an interviewer. The way I look when I do that is a secret that only my transcriber and my fact checker can know about because it's not pretty and it is not entertaining. I promise. Wow. But I guess that's really what can make you such a gifted novelist then, right? Because all you do is observe. You're a total observer. And then if you take all that and mix it all up and create new people, then, then you have a winning formula, essentially. Maybe. I mean, also think about the people that you think about the people that you interview. No, like to the essence of what you're saying, you are interviewing people who are naturally because I love your podcast. Thank um, you. People are naturally good at talking about themselves when they're writers. I made my career on stories about people who are absolutely not good at talking about themselves, but I still have a story to hand in. My first. Like the first story that really put me on the map was a GQ story, my first GQ story, in which I was sent to interview Nicki Minaj, who fell asleep while we were talking. So <laughs> I, the things that you and I have to do are very different. And you are you get to talk to people who have something to say, whereas I'm talking to people because they're good at something else. They're not necessarily good at talking about themselves. And so I have to do that to the, for them. I can't ridicule them because just because you're a good rapper doesn't mean you're good at talking about yourself. I'm not going to punish you for that. If you're a good actor, the same thing. If you're a good like athlete, my God, the athletes, it is like 
if you want to look at what, if you ever read a great story about an athlete, don't underestimate how hard it was to tell that story. I promise you. I'm not disparaging athletes. They're used to kind of a press conference style way of talking about themselves. And more than anything, they want to protect themselves. So if you ever read one of the great ones, and there are great ones, just know that that was harder than anything I ever had to do in the non-athlete space. So interesting. I think though that a challenge, at least in interviewing authors who are touring for a book is that I found at least is that they're very, Mm -hmm. some authors can be super media trained. So I feel like my whole job is to like get past all the canned answers. And those are so boring. Like I just, I just really want to get to know people. Like I'm excited to get to know you. And so the things that they prepared, I don't want to hear those things. I can read them somewhere else. So I don't know. It's all, it's all fun. I, (laughs) I agree with you. The most shocking thing that happened to me was getting interviewed when this book came out. And I think about the nature of the answers I gave. They were all true, but they were only true in that minute. Or they were the thing that I thought to say because there's so much pressure in a conversation. It made me really rethink the idea that is, can you get to know somebody during an interview? Like, is that is this a good way of getting to know someone? The first interview I came back to do after my book tour was Tom Hanks. And I had an existential crisis about whether or not, like, is there any way to get to know Tom Hanks? I didn't have one question. We were just kind of running down the clock. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is a valid way. Like, you tell me, like, tell me what you think I should know because I don't even know what this is anymore. That's what it became to me. It became like interviewing after this book tour became like when you stare at a word too long and it becomes just a string of letters. Like, what am I doing here? What am I like? Is there any way to get to know somebody? I don't know. I still don't know the answer. I mean, you know, I told you my mom and Aunt Lois are here. Maybe after they'll tell me whether or not that was the authentic version of me. I, I have no idea. And it, as you can see, it's plunged me into a space of, I don't know what the hell I'm doing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the space I would say nine out of 10 people live in. So there you go. You're just, <laughs> well, I mean, I think you because you got me there. <laughs> I really do think it's possible to get to know somebody because I don't know. My husband always says, don't call what you do interviewing because you just want to chat with somebody. Can you get to know someone if you chat with them for 30 minutes at a cocktail party? I would argue. Yes. You don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I'm so self-conscious at a cocktail party. Okay. Maybe not a cocktail. (laughs) How about about, like, how about you're sitting next to them at a dinner and it's just, you have to have a conversation, right? You can get to know someone a little. Or you get to know the most ideal version of them. like. I, if my husband overheard this, he may, I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking, wow, she doesn't sound like half the monster she normally is. Or maybe he's thinking she, she's shyer than this in real life. He's not thinking that. Or maybe, (laughs) or maybe he's thinking like what I'm saying is a facade I put on. I don't know. We are in the soup. We are. I feel terrible. I hope hope that other people are interested in this. This is the stuff I find fascinating. Not my typical. No, I love it. Are you kidding? I feel like now we have to. 
our husbands have to come in and say, are, is this really what these two women are like? Or are they, you know, Maybe. I, I feel like, you know, I don't know. Okay. Well, let's get back. Let's get back. Okay. To your <laughs> okay. So now we know what inspired you to write the book and mm-hmm. all of that. What was your process like writing? How long did it take you to write? Where do you like to write? Give me like the, uh, the process stuff. The where do you like to write is what I call like a man question. Like all of the male writers I know have a have a place where they could write. And I can tell you this. I wrote my book on an airplane with my child straddling me and crying, not being able to see the keys. I wrote my book in the North. You know how like some Nordstrom's have a couch in the bathroom. I wrote it. I wrote one. I wrote a a big chunk of it there. I wrote it at the at the bakery in town. I wrote it in the car outside of a McDonald's because McDonald's have good Wi-Fi. And if you sit there, I wrote it especially in the 90 minute period where you drop kids off at a birthday party and don't have to pick them up yet. Um, I have a lot of friends here who 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 used to think I was a very generous carpooler because I would do both ways because of that. And now I don't. <laughs> so I think I wonder <laughs> exactly what happened to me. Um, my pro- But because of that, and because I didn't need a special place, and I didn't need the wind blowing through my hair in a certain way, because I've never been given those things. I, I think that those people who if the more needs you have, the more it will take you a million years to write your book. I wrote this in six months and I wrote it because it was a challenge to myself. I was a freelance writer at the time. I was on contract at GQ and the New York Times Magazine, but that's not a regular, that's not a steady income. And I wrote it as a challenge to myself, which was you have six months to try to do something that will get you ahead financially. I'm literally the only person in the history of the world that wrote a novel to make money, which is not, which is not a statement on delusion, but a statement on how little you make as a journalist. The idea is always like, how can I continue to do this? And the, this is how can I make sure I never miss a basketball game? My children have 600 basketball games a week and I only have two children. How can I ever make it so that I don't miss something that's important to me, that I'm home as much as I can be for bedtime? How can I make it so that I don't have to get dressed all the time when I, when I, when I commute? I see all these people, like, we're all wearing pants, and we're all wearing bras, and we're all wearing, like, our hair is done, and, our, and it just feels like it couldn't possibly be that that's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Like, if, if there's one thing that happens after this time, I hope we do away with the idea of, like, restrictive clothing. My, my husband has always said to me that he can't believe that we're already in 2020 and we're not all wearing, like, speed skating unitards. And I, I'm on board with that. That's how I did it. I did it on airplanes. I did it in between. I did it while the kids were setting the table. I would add a sentence. I would add a page. And then when it looked like I was making it to the finish line, that's when I would say to my husband, take the kids to your mother in Florida for the weekend. Maybe they won't notice I'm there. Or I would volunteer to do stories. I went to interview Antonio Banderas in Budapest, Budapest, 
I, I caught that. Because of the air, because of the ride, because it would take like 12 hours to get there because there were no direct flights. And that an airplane time is really good time. So that's how I wrote the book. <laughs> the limited, the writing I've done, I'm the same way with you. And I'm no, you know, I'm not like you, but I feel like when you have kids and your life is so full and there's no free time, you have to grab the time. Also to use that time to read. I mean, those are also the moments, the stolen moments where you can get anything literary in any way shoved in. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. So are I don't you know how you read and then interview people. Because oh, I can't read as quick. I guess I can't read as quickly as you do. I read quickly. I've also figured out sort of how to skim a lot and research mm-hmm. authors. And I don't read every single book start to finish every single page. I try oh. to do that more for the podcast. For the podcast, I really do try to. But like the Instagram lives I'm doing now, there's just no way. No way, right? But I say to them like, hey, I'm sorry, I haven't read your book, but it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like for me at least, and I don't know about you, but this whole pandemic has allowed me to deal with my perfectionism a little bit to say like, yeah. okay, well, no one is expecting anything of me anymore. Like if you say I haven't read your book, people are like, of course you haven't. How could you? And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> you know, you feel- great- yes, I absolutely feel that way. My, hus- my husband is doing a majority of the homeschooling, but I, I find that the accrued centuries of sexism have allowed people to assume that I'm doing it. So they are really forgiving of me. They're very understanding because it must be so hard for me right now. Whereas I'm not even sure if my kids are, they're in the next room at school. I don't even know what platform they use. They do it for like, are, are they on Google meet? Are they on zoom? Am I okay? Like, I don't know. So I feel like people let me off the hook more, which only makes me more of an ambition monster. Oh, um, I like it. Like, oh, maybe I'll be able to write a third book, a second book and a third book during this time. The thing that I'm finding is horrible about this pandemic, in addition to the pandemic, right? Like, obviously, yes. the pandemic is the bad part. But the amount of ways I have to kind of keep it together for my family and not freak out. It's, it's coming out in my sleep. It's coming out like I wake up at 2 a.m. every, every day now for an hour, just for an hour. Like I'm trying to build some acceptance around it and just, and just be up for that hour and be okay with it. But it's so disturbing. But then I wake up and then I'm like, I can't, I can't, figure out how to attack my perfectionism. But I also think that I don't have perfectionism. Like I have, I have enough experience with the fact that a good story can be made great by collaboration. So by the time I've written an okay story, I know from experience by now that sending it to my editors is going to make it great. So I make it as good as I can, but I know that it's not just in my hands. There's nothing I do that is left to me alone. Although everything I do has my name on it. So I feel very lucky about that. That's what I'll say about perfectionism. I wish I had some more perfectionism. I have the part of perfectionism that is (laughs) self-loathing, but I don't have the part of perfectionism that is execution. Interesting. No, I don't, I'm not saying I do anything perfectly. I just aspire to that. (laughs) I'm not, it's like, it's like a wannabe perfectionist or something. It's like, if I could be perfect, that's what I would like to be. (laughs) 
but I'm failing. And by the way, I don't even try to pretend in front of my kids anymore. I've cried to so much in front of my, I've cried more in front of my kids during the past two months than I have in all the years combined. And that includes going through a divorce and all the other stuff I've been through in life. And so I feel like uh, I can sleep through the night because I am a mess during the day a lot of the time. So I don't know. However we get through it, it's like. It's like an alternative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the latest with Flation is in Trouble becoming a movie or a TV show? Or I know you had really exciting news. So what's the latest? show. Yeah. So it is being developed by ABC Signature for FX. And I have these two amazing producers, Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant. When I was in, I went to film school and when I was trying, my first attempt was as a screenwriter, I worshiped Susanna Grant. She wrote Erin Brockovich and she was one of the only women who was notably doing that. And I just kind of glommed onto her. And they wanted the book. And so I feel like I'm writing these, I'm writing episodes and I have like a world-class producer and a world-class screenwriter, two women who are just excellent at this. Also, I've never worked for women before other than my time at a startup. I've never worked in a kind of in a creative model for a woman. I've had a couple of female editors, but not ones that I worked for on contract. It's like there's so much less aggression and there's so much less whatever this is. I love my editors very, very much, but it's very, it's a very calm experience to work for these two women. So obviously right now, there have been some ideas that people throw at me. Like what if we were to sequester a bunch of actors and then allow them to this television show even now, but it, it doesn't really work out that way. Since if you've read the book, Toby has quite a few montages of sexual interaction that last in a, in a screenplay last less than seven seconds. And you don't want to do that to an, to an actress, <laughs> just keep her in hiding, keep her in a tower just so, you know, for, for seven seconds, but it's going very, very well. And it's really exciting to think of this living on, I don't, I don't know. I think that there's so much opportunity to have, to watch these characters live and to tell a, a definitive story about middle age right now. I mean, that's the thing that kind of set me on fire about the project in the first place. Even if there is all this other more glamorous stuff, there is, there's the sex, there's the dating, there's the wealth and I'm obsessed with wealth, but it's the middle-agedness is the thing that I'm still working my way through. I have a hard time self-identifying as middle-aged. Do you have trouble with that or you're embracing no, it? No, I have been, since I was 35, I have been self-identifying as middle-aged. And when I was 25, I was like, well, I guess I screwed, screwed life up. You know, like I, I've <laughs> always thought that I'm much older. And that's, the, that's a real curse. Like you're very lucky because it's a curse to think of yourself as always old because in five years I'm going to realize I was not at all old right now. And what did I do at the time? I wore a Land's End bathing suit and a caftan because I thought I had to live in hiding my whole life when really this was my youth or at the very least right this minute was as young as I was ever going to be again. It's a really hard thing to think about self in time. Also you're only middle-aged if you, if you live to old age, like, 
you know, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> this I know. Might, these might be my, my senior years. Yeah, we don't this, know this yet. Is, these are my golden hours and I just don't even right. know. This is it. End of the line. I, I mean, I shouldn't even joke. This is horrible. I mean, I didn't hear that as a joke. I heard that as okay, like good. a frenetic. It could be. Well, yes. okay. Can, how could it yeah. be that you and I, when we arranged to do this, we arranged to do it live. I was, I negotiated a car into Manhattan, which I thought was the height of glamour. And now we're doing it this way. It is, it is unbelievable. I wake up and I cannot believe that this is what's going on in the world. Maybe I can't believe it also because my life right now is so similar to what my life is every other day. I keep thinking it would feel more like reality if I had a, a true disruption in my life. But even when I write stories for the times, I stay home and I write them. But not everybody is necessarily home with you, right? I mean, your kids are like, right. but, but right. the day is short and they get home pretty fast. I know, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Hence the Nordstrom bathroom. What's missing from my life is the Nordstrom bathroom at the Short Hills Mall. The department stores cannot go out of business or else novels I mean, will cease to exist. What I will know, we do? <laughs> Fleischman will be in more than trouble. Fleischman will disappear. Fleischman will be in, uh, in the bargain bin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have to ask, since this is a Temple Emanuel Stryker Center function and everything, the role of Judaism in this book in particular, how did that play a role and how does, it, how did, how does religion fit into your life? Are you particularly oh religious God. or... Know, maybe a, I'm not allowed to ask that. Can I ask that? No, you're not allowed to ask that. That's a very hairy question. I was raised in a very orthodox household. I went to yeshiva. I went to yeshiva university high school for girls. I say yeshiva to this crowd and they say, oh, Ramaz. And I'm here to reassure you that I could not have gotten into Ramaz. Um, <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, and I left it. Like my mother became religious when I was 12. She was very supportive, disappointed, but supportive in the fact that I, of my three sister, my, 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 I have three sisters and they all are religious and I just couldn't do it. And we work as a family very hard now to accommodate each other. And it is one of my, the things I'm proudest of that we have not let the variance in our observances become an issue for us. I have Friday night dinner. My kids don't use screens on Shabbat. My kids go to day school. I pay membership at a synagogue that I attend sometimes and that I enjoy when I attend. I am planning a bar mitzvah. And that is the only, like the last time I kind of had a crisis around this was when I planned my wedding. Now I plan, I plan this bar mitzvah and I, you know, I'm trying to think about like, how do I want it to be? And it always, forces me to ask these questions, which are, how do you want to be? Which leads to me saying, how are you 44 years old? And you don't know yet. Like, when, when, when are you going to figure this out? But when I wrote the book, I did not think of it as a Jewish book. I thought of it as a book about my world, about the kinds of people that I've known. Like, you know, they say, write what you, what you know. And I always rebelled against that because when I hear that, I think of it as the same thing as people saying, stay in your lane in journalism. You should only be able to write about people who are like you. But, you know, some of the best stories I've done, like I read about Don Lemon 
who is a gay black man. I've written about Gentiles. I've written about all kinds of people who aren't like me. And I really am against the idea that we can only write about the people who are like us. But the thing that writing about people like you is, is it gives you specificity. It gives you, it's a way to speak without having an accent, right? Like I know, like I, it's my first time out. I'm going to write a book. You know what? It's going to be about the people I know. Another aspect of it is that you asked me where I wrote a lot of this book. And the one place I didn't mention, which is crazy because it's where I practically revised the whole thing, but wrote a big chunk of it, was my Aunt Lois, whom I've said is in the audience here, owns the studio next to her apartment, maybe to one day turn into a palace that, you know, I can, I can only hope I will still have access to. But it's where I've gone. And the Upper East Sidiness of this book comes from the fact that I spent days sequestered in her and my and my uncle Alan's place going out to get food standing in line at the salad place on third avenue and 85th street and noticing how on the upper east side it seems like people are exercising all the time like there is no peak period of exercise women exercise like if I wanted to leave writing the thing I would do is open up an exercise business on the upper east side because people will exercise as much as it's like that water will fill the, t- the, the tank. Like there's more exercise to be done. And I would watch <laughs> these women wearing these amazing t- tank tops that said like, like lipstick and lunges and eat in and live, love, laugh. And, you know, but first coffee and all of those things came from seeing them and all of the Jewish aspects of my book didn't feel like Jewish aspects to me. I am like a post Philip Roth fiction writer. They felt like a specific American experience to me. So that's how I'll, that's how I'll say that. I do know that like, I didn't think of it as a Jewish book until, until I named it. It had a few names and then I settled on Fleischman is in trouble. And I was warned by several interested parties that that, that that might not sell well in the UK, right? For example, and I'd say why, and they'd say because it's it's a it's too New Yorky, and I'd say, are you sure you're using the right word? Because everyone was very proud of the you know like everyone loved the cover, right? Which is an upside down New York cityscape. That's when I found out that it was a Jewish book, and then when I toured. And two things happened. Three things happened. Number one, synagogues were interested in me. Number two, I met a bunch of people named Toby Fleischman. (laughs) I had a bunch of people who brought me pictures of their their late grandmother or great uncle named Toby Fleischman. And it was remarkable. And young people, too. And the third thing that happened was that people asked me this question. And I guess I... The answer is, like, I, you know, I'm, I, maybe I'm too Jewish to see outside of being Jewish. I don't know. <laughs> That's my answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> and by the way, I have grown up on the Upper East Side and until the pandemic have been there basically most of my life. And I do not work out like that at all. So it's not everybody, but I do see it. 
I'm in New Jersey, and if, pre-pandemic, if I want to exercise, there is a two-hour period of time that follows drop-off, school drop-off. Same, same so for me. You do whatever yeah. you need. When I was staying at Aunt Lois and Uncle Alan's apartment, I could exercise at 11 p.m. however <laughs> I wanted to on a Saturday <laughs> night. It was amazing. Don't it's I like, didn't, but I could have. <laughs> I know. I always like when I'm like driving home from like a dinner or something and I see somebody like in a building on their treadmill and I'm like, wow, they're still working out, right? It's like, anyway. <laughs> what were your alternate titles? Can I ask? Yeah. The first one was called Schrodinger's Marriage. And everybody said to me, half the people said, you can't put an umlaut in your first novel title because people, you already have such a screwy name. Nobody will know how to search for it. And the <laughs> other half said, great title, but then a week later couldn't remember it. Mm. So that's, that's where I took my guidance. The second title was In What Universe? Because I love the audacity of it. But then I found out that a, there was a YA novel called In What Universe? And I felt like that's a really good YA novel title. I don't think that's a good, like, the thing I'm doing is a little darker than that. And my friend, Elizabeth Weil, who's also a writer, she was at the New York Times Magazine at, at the time with me, but now she's at ProPublica. She came up with the title, Fleischman is in Trouble. And I kept trying to think of other good titles. and. I couldn't think of anything else. And now I'm so happy that we went with this one. And also it's, it's song, done pretty well in the UK. Um, <laughs> and also it has sold, it's foreign, it's foreign rights have sold in a kind of order of anti-Semitic, like, like Poland, Hungary, Croatia, Germany, like those were France. Those are the, like the first places to go. So. So I want to make sure we have time for all the questions, but I just, I just want to ask what your next project is and then see if you have any advice for aspiring authors. Okay. So what's your, um, next, what are you working on? What's your next project? My next project, other than the television show, is a new book that will be out next summer called Long Island Compromise. It's about a family from Great Neck and inherited trauma and inherited wealth. And it, and the way Fleischman was ultimately about middle age and gender and relationships, which are all kind of one thing, if you follow it down the hole, this is about the disappearing middle class. And this is about wealth in the suburbs, wealth among Jews, and the way it's really, really hard to get ahead now in a way that it wasn't for our, my parents' generation. And my advice for aspiring writers is... It depends. You know what it is? It's and in no way to despair. It's a good question to not ask anybody's advice and to not listen to anybody's advice. I get the. I think that every time you ask for an opinion from someone that you admire, for example, you take that to be the absolute truth when it's entirely possible that you are better. You are going to be better than the people that you admire. And the and and. And asking advice of writers, reading writer blogs, which I've done, listening to writer podcasts, is an excellent way to convince yourself that you have that you are writing when actually you are not writing. You are doing the opposite. You are taking in information that will make writing impossible. The more information you have, the harder it is, I think. 
again, that's me as a patented terrible student. But I think that if you ask people too many questions and you start listening too much, the only way to be a writer is to write. The only person who can call themselves a writer is someone who has written today. There is no amount of doing anything other than writing that will leave you with a page full of writing. And 100% of unwritten novels don't get sold, (laughs) whereas you stand a chance. So just write. Do not believe in writer's block. It was invented by people who want you to feel bad. You can always write the next sentence and just go. And I can't wait to read whatever you have to write. There are so many people who are saying that right now is a bad time to write. And there's so many people who are doing this thing where they're making it so that you feel bad about writing or that you're thinking it's impossible. I see it on Twitter all day. Nobody will be able to produce good art right now. You know what? Some days are bad and some days are good. You can still do it. Don't let anyone tell you that. And so now for someone who had no advice, that was my advice. <laughs> but you, you have to put an asterisk and say that it's okay if people listen to my podcast to inspire so them. Yours isn't a how-to podcast. Yours okay, is a great, like reader podcast. That's why I, read, I listen to it or else I couldn't listen to it because okay. I cannot listen to, to that. <laughs> okay, good. Just, just making sure you didn't rule me yeah. out there. No, 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 no. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Sibby. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jiggy Puzzles for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Get 10% off with code Zibby at JiggyPuzzles.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Thank you.